with the killer of two women behind bars, convicted of killing only one of them, it was time for Steve Fulcher to face the disciplinary hearing. Starting on the 20th of January 2014 and taking place over four days, the hearing would examine Steve's conduct on the day he arrested Christopher Halliwell. By then, almost three years had passed since that day Halliwell told Fulcher that he'd killed two women. The hearing was to focus mainly on the breaches of pace that had occurred during the investigation and arrest, as well as allegations that after the arrest, Steve had had meetings with broadcast journalists against the orders of the force. Because the hearing was not held in public, Steve's wife was not allowed to attend for support. Again, Debbie Peach had not been called to give evidence, despite being the only witness to Steve's conversation with Christopher Halliwell. As the mother of one of the victims, however, Karen Edwards was invited to attend. And she did. She was horrified by what she saw happen to the detective who had found her daughter, Becky. My husband Charlie and I had been invited because we were part, obviously, of this murder investigation. We were invited along. He didn't stand a chance. It was like throwing a, him to the lions. They made an absolute meal of him. It was a disgrace. Now forgive me if I, I get angry here. They systematically destroyed him, piece by piece by piece. And I had to sit and listen to this. He looked, I, I, he didn't look like he looked when he knocked on my door. He looked like a broken man. I couldn't believe that they had turned, all of them, every single one in that room turned on him. His colleagues, they turned on him. And now we're talking about a man that had just been nominated for the Queen's Medal. Now, they're not dished out willy-nilly. I, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. Given that finding their daughter meant so much to Becky's family, it was particularly galling for Karen to hear questioning about what Steve Fulcher should have done when Halliwell said, do you want another? Do you want another? Steve Fulcher, I think, well, in all his career, I don't think any other police officer has ever been asked that question before. Who confesses? Who confesses to a murder? He'd got away with it for eight years, and here he is in the police car saying, 
Do you want another one? What would you have done if you'd have been in that position? I know what I would have done. I would have done exactly what Steve Fulcher did. Show me. The, the police had agreed with the IPCC that this was gross misconduct. Gross misconduct. And if I just tell you a couple of the things that stood out in my mind in the conduct hearing at Devizes police station, I could not believe my ears when they said, now the public need to hear this, the police said that Becky should have been left out there now, how disgraceful is that? How often is this happening under our noses that we don't know? They said he should have been, he should have cautioned Halliwell. He should have taken him back to the police station. They should have given him his human rights and Becky should have been left out there. And Steve Fulcher, I mean, at that point, they even said when there was, he said there was a 1% chance that Sean may still have been alive. And they said, really? You think she would have been alive? And he said, well, there was 1% chance there was still a chance. They, they, they spoke to him disgraceful. They spoke to him disgraceful. They'd asked the team, they'd asked me if I would stand up and give um, a statement to how I felt about the conduct, but I was never called. While Karen watched Steve being attacked at the hearing, she felt like they were trying to heap the entire blame on him. But she knew he had operated with a full team behind him the entire way. It also seemed like a grave omission that neither she nor Debbie Peach were ever called. Another person was never called was Debbie Peach. Now Debbie Peach was Steve Fulcher's scribe and she took down all the notes of everything that happened, um, a crime in action, I think they call it. And she was called from day one, when he was arrested, she was there and she took all the notes. Also, there was the commanders that were in charge of the investigation. They're the ones that Steve, Steve Fulcher didn't go off like vigilante style on his own and do this. He's got commanders who are higher than him and they work as a team and they're called the Gold Command Team. And they work closely together, instructions and phone calls and backwards and forwards and they negotiate how this was going to happen. Now, all of these actions are put into a gold policy book. Now, this gold policy book was a very, very important piece of evidence at Steve's conduct hearing. That went missing. That went missing from the Chief Constable's office. But now, six years later, it's been found. A miraculous recovery of a gold policy book. Why couldn't they have found that all those years ago? That would have been very important at his conduct hearing. Over the course of the hearing, the then Chief Constable Pat Ginty gave testimony that his senior investigating officer, Steve Fulcher, was the most experienced and probably the best SIO in the force. He reminded the panel that the presiding judge and Mr Latham, the defence lawyer, both agreed that this was not a misconduct issue. He also reiterated what he had said back in the pre-trial voir dire that he agreed with Steve's actions, 
but only up to the point that Shan had been located. Quote, I disagree with Steve's judgment when it was past the location of Sean O'Callaghan. That is when I think pace and the protection of the suspect would have become far more prominent because tragically we then knew Sean was dead. At that point, my thinking would have changed. Steve's lawyer brought up the Queen's Police Medal nomination that the force had drawn up two years previously praising Steve's conduct in the exact same set of circumstances. An internal email chain emerged that referenced the awkward fact that Steve had come to know about the nomination and would therefore be able to raise it during the disciplinary proceedings. Apparently there was concern, not just about the questions it obviously raised for the force, but about how this information had come into Steve's hands. For a year after, from March 2011 when I dealt with Halliwell to January 2012, I was universally applauded, not just locally but nationally. Um, everybody, the senior echelon, supported that position. Brian Moore, the chief constable, said very specifically that if they refused to accept the evidence as admissible, then it would be more of a commentary on British justice than on my actions, that he fully supported what I did. And his exact words were, Steve, it will be me walking down the steps, not you, i.e. this some reference to court action subsequently. That was from Brian Moore, the chief constable at the time, who was accountable or should have been accountable for this, this um, providing governance over me. So he had every opportunity whilst I was out with Christopher Hallowood to call on the radio, say, stop what you're doing, come back. This is an order from the Chief Constable. That wasn't done. He had every opportunity for a year to say, I'm sanctioning you, I'm suspending you, or um, whatever it is he wants to do. Just the reverse happened. Now, all this should have been recorded in the gold policy book, which magically then goes missing. So there's no accountability applied to Chief Officers. Brian Moore, when he left, uh, was replaced by Pat Ginty. Pat Ginty, in that same pretrial hearing, stood up in court under oath and said he'd like to think he would have the guts to do precisely what I did, because it's the right thing to do. That's what he said. He then, it's now uh, three years subsequent to that, at the discipline panel, can change his mind and say, no, actually, in, in hindsight and on reflection, I, I think it wasn't the right thing to do. So circumstances in which that police force recommended me for a Queen's Police Medal in the New Year's Honours list. A Queen's Police Medal, the highest honour a police officer can have for my handling of that situation, can with the exact same circumstances, no change in the circumstances, deem it to be gross misconduct without taking any accountability themselves whatsoever or even recording their rationale for such a vault fast. In addition to all these arguments, the panel alleged that Steve had conducted meetings with the journalists Steve Brody and Rob Murphy in contravention of expressed orders, a charge he contested. As far as Steve Brody was concerned, they had all played by the book. He was charged with gross misconduct because he gave me an interview, the only interview he gave, shortly after the arrest of Christopher Halliwell which was conducted under the strict provisions which were entirely in line with the 
Wiltshire Police Force's existing policy on such interviews, that you could have the interview if you only use it after a conviction, something that I certainly stood by. And as far as I can remember, nobody had ever broken that policy. It's not unusual for senior officers to give interviews under those strict uh, agreements that you will not broadcast anything until there's been a conviction. And that's exactly what happened with Steve Fulcher. For reasons best known to themselves, the IPCC decided that was a case of gross misconduct. He was the senior investigating officer. The policy of the force in existence in writing said that he could do just that if he deemed it necessary. I persuaded him to give that interview. He certainly didn't come to me and say, can I be on television? I went to the, a press officer at the time who agreed as well, an officer who had been a press officer, uh, very well versed in these things, who in fact had written the policy. And Steve Fortune went to him and said, can I give this interview to Steve Brody? Steve Brody, shut me up. And um, I want to give him this interview under the usual conditions. And uh, this officer said, absolutely, it's in line. You know Steve professionally. We, we have no doubt that the BBC will honour its pledge not to broadcast it. And indeed we did. We did honour that pledge. We did not broadcast it until Christopher Halliwell was convicted of the murder of Shana Callahan. When all was said and done, the independent panel arranged by Wiltshire Police found Fulcher guilty of inappropriate contact with the media and breaching PACE guidelines. Far from being a hero cop who caught a killer and deserved a medal, he was a bad cop, guilty of gross misconduct. And yet, to his surprise, Steve was told he would not be sacked. He was given two final warnings, but allowed to keep his job. After being the police officer who Chief Constable Pat Geenty called the most experienced and probably the best SIO in the force, Steve was going to be relegated to a desk job. Becky's mother, Karen, saw this as a travesty. Steve Fulcher was not sacked, but he was had for gross misconduct, which meant that he kept his job, but he wasn't going to do the job that he'd been trained to do. He was going to sit in an office fiddling with paper clips for the rest of his, you know, his, his life till he had retired. Now, with somebody with his capabilities, that was that was disgraceful. And I felt that they were out gunning for him and they had got him, hook, line and sinker. I can remember coming out of his conduct hearing and I can remember I was so distraught one of my flows, because they were not allowed in the room at the time, it was just Charlie and I, they, I remember them picking me up off the floor because I, I don't know if I passed out or whatever, but I was just, my God, I couldn't believe what the police had actually, what they were doing. What were they doing? They didn't have to take it this far. They didn't have to do this to Steve. They chose to do that to Steve. This seemed all the more strange when Steve discovered that, unbeknown to him at the time, 
His employers had also sought to mount a criminal prosecution against him for misfeasance in a public office. A serious offence that would probably have seen him go to jail. Misfeasance is, um, is an offence that carries a 14-year maximum penalty and it uh, involves uh, a party who holds public office, in my case, the Office of Constable as a police officer, misusing that office to cause somebody serious harm. So if I'd fitted somebody up or if I'd planted evidence, that would be an obvious case of misfeasance in a public office. But the victim in, in this allegation is Christopher Halliwell. And of course, the one thing that people seem to miss is he isn't an innocent party trapped by a rogue police officer. He's a guilty party trapped by a very skilled bit of police work by me and my colleagues. I didn't fit him up, did I? In what regard could I possibly have fitted him up? How could I have compelled him to confess to something, to take me, an entire surveillance crew of 30 officers and a police helicopter to two locations, the identity of which I had no knowledge, cannot possibly have been anything other than a voluntary confession given at that particular point in time. The corollary of, of what you're suggesting is that I must have planted evidence of, of bodies and, and had the collusion of an entire, well, it wasn't just one police force, several police forces. Clearly, that's nonsense. So their argument was that I had done Christopher Halliwell significant harm as a consequence of identifying him as a serial killer. So this is the police service suggesting, and the IPCC suggesting, that a serial killer should be walking free and that a, a detective seeking to save a young girl's life caused him a serious harm in uncovering his criminality. Well, if that's the case, what are the police for in terms of detecting crime? Is it an entire passive box-ticking exercise or is it something that requires skill, judgment, integrity and uh, the ability to, or the fortitude to, to pursue people like Halliwell when they gave no leakage, had left no clues, was a, a really good quality criminal in so far as he left no evidence behind. And the people near to him had no idea that he was a, had a propensity for murder. I mean, it's an extraordinary idea. As far as Steve was concerned, the path the police were taking was utter madness. It questioned the very role of a police officer. The uh, word said to me by Halliwell, do you want another one, as being a perfectly reasonable thing to accept. In fact, it'd be very unreasonable not to accept it, I would suggest. I mean, how, have we, how are we even having this discussion? Do the British public know, having been fed on a diet of, of TV crime drama, do they even know or can get the head round how this can be so problematic. The notion that when somebody says, do you want another one? You should say, no, thank you very much. My career's worth more than that. I mean, have we come this far down this route that this utter madness pervades as public policy? Because it isn't logical. If you understand the law and understand that there isn't a PACE compliant option, muttering a caution at that point does not make it PACE compliant. In fact, all it does is acknowledge that you, what you should be doing, if you're going to follow the strictures of Code C, is to, what you should be doing is taking him into custody, according to Cox J. I say, if somebody says, I've murdered somebody, your duty as a police officer, as a detective investigating that, is to find out such circumstances as can recover the victim and the evidence associated with it. Now, as far as the difference between those two 
victims are concerned. With Sean, I was acting under the aegis of the urgent interview provisions of Section 11.1 to save somebody's life. And I stand by that and I'm 100% clear that I'm 100% justified. And if police officers are not going to act in that way, that's where the public ought to be concerned. Of course, by not actually sacking Steve, the force avoided the inevitable media storm that would have erupted. Instead, Steve would quietly serve out his remaining days in a back office role, safely distanced from the frontline policing he loved and was so experienced in. He only needed to do a few more years before he could collect his pension anyway. And so it might have been, but for what happened next? I wasn't supposed to know that this QPM nomination had gone forward and the force assumed that that information had been provided to my defence counsel by Debbie Peach, who was the PA to the Chief Constable. It hadn't, as a matter of fact, but as a consequence, they suspended Debbie Peach from duty. She decided she wasn't going to go through the same misery and, and travesty that I'd been through and resigned. And my view was, if my colleagues are suffering the loss of their career over association with me, then my position also is untenable. I can hardly keep my job whilst good people are losing theirs. In light of these events and his own spiralling mental health, Steve made the last big call of his career. On May 2nd, 2014, he finally tendered his resignation, throwing away a six-figure pension pot and the job that he had made his life. Karen was appalled. After the hearing, I believe that Steve Fulcher resigned in the May from the police force. We'd lost a really good police officer and he had chosen to resign because he had been treated so badly. How could you work alongside these people that had sat in a courtroom and just put a knife in your back? Because that's what they did. They completely destroyed him and I think he was shocked that they had all turned on him. I, I just couldn't believe it. It was, you know, why? Why would they want to get rid of a good officer? Why would they want to get rid of an officer that has just been awarded or nominated a Queen's Medal? Because of what had happened to him, Steve found himself unemployable in the UK. Journalist Steve Brody explains why. Steve Walter's current work status in Great Britain is that he's been found guilty of two charges of gross misconduct by the IPCC, which means he's almost unemployable, certainly unemployable in any British police force, and unemployable really, per se, in, in, in agencies in Britain, which forced him to go overseas and work in very nasty conditions, helping with security, I know that somebody very close to him was murdered, was shot down, and that's the only place he can work. The overseas position Brody is referring to was in Somalia, where Steve Fulcher turned to private contracting work. He's a man who's been found guilty of gross misconduct, although, of course, he was not sacked. He resigned. And I have to say that it's taken its toll of him. He's taken it to heart that he was doing his best for two families. And he feels that it's now 
will put other officers like himself in untenable positions that they won't take that chance to track down a serial killer because they're facing dishonor, perhaps even the sack, and loss of their mortgage. So they won't do it. Why should they? They're not going to be supported unless there is a change in the law. But the end of Steve's UK policing career isn't the end of this story. Nor had he had his final courtroom encounter with Christopher Halliwell. Under the relentless pressure brought by Karen Edwards's tireless campaigning and in the wake of Steve's disciplinary hearing, a new senior investigating officer had been placed in charge of Becky's investigation. Picking up on the many leads Steve had left behind three years earlier. They soon started to get results. Forensic analysis indicated a match between the soil of the field Becky had been left in and the soil on a spade seized from Halliwell's house. A fresh appeal for witnesses was made. And in May 2014, officers made a grim discovery. At the bottom of a pond in Ramsbury, the place Halliwell feared he had been witnessed by a gamekeeper, they found Becky's cardigan. When they dug further in the vicinity, they found no fewer than 60 items of women's clothing. Among them were Sean O'Callaghan's boots. Karen was called to identify any other items that could have belonged to her daughter. What shocked her was the number of items, which led to the big question. How many women did they belong to? They found items, and I have seen these items because the police come out to ask me to identify some of them. There was items of underwear. There was items of, there was a handbag handle. Um, There was items of clothing. There was... It wouldn't have all belonged. If you counted those individual items, they belonged to somebody. I'm not saying that there's 60 people, but even if it was 30 people, even if it's another two, it still makes him a serial killer. Those items of clothing laid out in such a fashion. It couldn't have been a fly tipper. A fly tipper would not have dug a trench and put clothing in it. Sean's boots was there. And we believe now that that is where, that's his lair. He takes the girls there, derobes them, and then goes on to hide their bodies. And it's the most spookiest, eeriest place that I have ever been to. We'd gone to the police station And I asked if Charlie and I could go to Ramsbury to see this area. We went to Ramsbury. And it was a rainy, dark, dismal day. I remember it very well. And your flesh actually, it crept. It was unbelievable. Steve Fulcher and I, and I think lots of other people, believe Christopher Halliwell is a serial killer. For a start, there was that gap between Becky and Sean. A serial killer don't go that length of period. You know, a a normal murderer does not go that length of period. 
to kill one and then another. When he was in his 20s, he was in prison. He asked his cellmate, how many do I need to be a, a serial killer? His mate replied, three. So at that point in his life, I feel he had his heights up there. He was going to be, if he wasn't already, a serial killer. And why would you ask somebody questions like that? Why would you ask somebody that? That wouldn't even come into my equation. You know, I feel that I'm quite a normal person. Other people might think different, but I think I'm quite a normal, level-headed thinking person. And that is not a question I would ask somebody. Whilst I was out on my campaign, lots of people came to me with different stories about Christopher Halliwell. Different links that could be made and girls that could have potentially been his victim. Lucky escapes that they'd had. This is, this is building up a character of Christopher Halliwell now. You know, it's over a period of time, different stories. In February 2015, Halliwell was taken from prison for re-questioning. And this time, far from his old no-comment routine, he was chatty. He made his police interviewers a very unexpected and troubling offer. This is what he said. I can resolve the matter, but I don't want you coming back every couple of years, every five years, every ten years, whatever. If this, with this, with this, with something like that. If, if it goes to court and I'm found guilty, that's it. They lock me up, that's where I the key. I'm ending, no illusion, I'm not stupid. I don't want to keep coming back every couple of years on a different charge all the time. So what I'm saying is, if I can clear this up in the next few hours, will everything else be forgotten? Journalist Steve Brody explains the deal Halliwell wanted to make with police. My understanding was that he was attempting to cut a deal that he'd get a lesser sentence. How he thought that, I've no idea. I don't think that any police officer would take that. In fact, they would be guilty of gross misconduct if they accepted such a suggestion from an already convicted murderer. It is interesting. Halliwell was clearly trying to almost bribe his way out of a very severe sentence by saying, you know, there's some others. He is a, uh, almost a, an impossible liar. To journalist Rob Murphy, it seemed like Halliwell was playing cat and mouse with the police. When Halliwell talks to the police in this interview, it seems very vague. He's almost speaking in, in a double language, really. What does he really mean? I think he's offering police the Becky admission, a confession to murdering Becky. But it goes away. He, the police aren't able to offer him the reassurances that he needs. He wants to be left alone every time another body is found. He's worried that the police are going to come to him and ask him about that. Uh, so he says he just wants to be left alone. Um, he says no deal. Witnesses came forward to say they had seen Becky get into Halliwell's car and a record search found that Halliwell had run out of fuel and called the roadside assist 
at 5.25am on January 3rd, 2003. The same day he had later presented at his GP with those scratches down his face. So, as Rob Murphy suggests, even though Halliwell refused to confess to further crimes, that didn't mean police couldn't build a case against him. Police and, and prosecutors uh, still hadn't got Halliwell's confession over Becky's murder, but they had, in the previous years, built up a case of evidence against him. They'd gone back to the spade that was seized from his shed at his home in Ashbury Avenue. Uh, there was some tape there as well. They'd analysed that, they got specialists to look at it, and that specialist had checked the soil samples found on the spade, and they matched exactly the soil found in the field where Becky was buried. And they had more evidence as well. They had uh, Becky's friend who'd seen her getting into an, uh, a taxi in front of a nightclub in early 2003. They had another friend who used to work with her on the streets of Swindon as well. And this was a whole new piece of evidence that we were not aware of. It showed that Hallowell had known Becky before he murdered her. It showed they had a relationship, that he was infatuated with Becky, that he used to pester her, he used to pay her to not work. The case was building against Halliwell, but without the confession evidence, could they be sure of getting a conviction against him for Becky's murder? All parties were soon to find out. In July 2016, five years after Christopher Halliwell had told police where Becky's body was, he would face trial for her murder. on the next episode of The Detective's Dilemma. There are some people who think that what a judge says is inviolable. That does take some explaining. That really does. It obviously rehearsed this line that he ended with. It was a pleasure to ruin your career, you corrupt bastard. 